0: The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world.
1: Name your free membership at CommonwealthClub.org slash grads and join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to tonight's program. Courtney Martin, Learning in Public. My name is Ashley McBride and I report on education equity for the Oakland side, a nonprofit news outlet in Oakland. I'm really excited to be moderating my first Commonwealth Club program, especially since tonight's event focuses on a book about how a mother chose a public school for her daughter in Oakland and the lessons she learned about race, her community, and herself in making that choice. The book is Learning in Public, Lessons for a Racially Divided America from My Daughter's School, which I have a copy of right here, and the author is Courtney Martin, who lives in Oakland. Courtney is an author, an organizer, and an entrepreneur. She's a co-founder of the Solutions Journalism Network and the Fresh Speakers Bureau, and the editor of the newsletter, Examine Family. Tonight, she's here to talk about her new book. Courtney, welcome to the Commonwealth Club.
0: Thank you so much, Ashley. I'm so excited to be doing this with you. And um, for those who don't know Ashley's work, check out the Oakland side. She's been doing some of the most important reporting here in Oakland on education and equity. So I just feel very lucky to be in conversation with you.
1: Thank you for um, inviting me to do this. So before we begin, I want to add that while this program is virtual, the Commonwealth Club is doing safe in-person programs as well at its headquarters across the bay in san francisco to learn more about upcoming programs and to find out how to be a member of the club visit www.commonwealthclub.org and one more housekeeping bit before we get started if you have a question for courtney or me tonight please use the youtube chat feature those questions will be submitted to me throughout the program and i'll try to ask as many as i can during our talk and at the end so let's get started. Courtney, I finished this book last week. And one thing that was clear to me early in reading it, um, that as a black woman who doesn't have children, I'm not exactly the target audience for this book. But that doesn't mean that it's not important. I really enjoyed it. Can you talk a little bit about who you wrote this book for and why?
0: It's such a good question. I'm really glad that, that you still enjoyed it. I have heard from particularly friends who don't have kids. They're like, I never thought I would care so much about like school meetings. This is like, if you told me about it, I would be been like, this is going to be really boring, but I'm actually riveted. How did this happen? Which to me is like the highest compliment. Um, and, you know, we have not all been parents, but we've all been schooled, right? We all have an educational experience. So that is a deep part of this book's journey is just reflecting on our own school experiences. What is a school? How does it influence who you become as a human? Those like deeply foundational questions. Um, but, you know, on the surface level, I I absolutely wrote this book for white and or privileged parents, um, Asian American parents, folks who have the the resources, the sort of like, freedom, the time, the energy to choose schools. And that's like such a a catchphrase, which I'm sure we're going to get into. But school choice is not as simple as it seems. Right. Um, So I really, really wanted to address white folks, privileged folks, especially white mothers. I'm really interested in in addressing the ways in which white mothers have a lot more power than they um, necessarily own up to and how politically important that is. Um, But I was also trying to be in deep accountability to folks of color, to educational activists and organizers and writers and journalists who've been covering this ground for so many years. So while it was the book is addressed really to white and our privileged parents, it's also it feels important to me that it's deeply in conversation and useful um, to folks of color who have been trying to move this movement forward. And I think at many times haven't felt like there's a resource to point to to say, you know, go get your people like white people to orga- need to organize together. White parents need to have these conversations with each other. Um, there's a certain kind of exhaustion, I think, that comes with trying to get white folks to think more critically about some of their choices around education. And so I'm hoping this book will be of use to a lot of people who have been doing this work for many, many years.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. I'm glad you included that piece about accountability, because I will also add that um, before I started the book, when you first approached me about doing this event, I was a little bit skeptical um, when I learned about the premise of the book. It's about a white woman choosing the school up the street for her daughter, and I was hesitant to be a part of what sometimes happens when white people receive praise or adulation for not, just not being racist. Can you talk a little bit about um that perception? And you, know, you were trying to avoid that as well, right?
0: Yes. I love I love the way you put that, right? Um yeah, that's the that's one of the the challenges and the sort of the paradoxes inherent in putting this book out into the world is um I deeply believe because I experienced it myself, and I've seen it in so many movements, not just this one. That social proof, the idea that, like, you actually do need other people who you think to yourself, like, well, people like me do things like this, um, that is a profound um, kind of amplifier effect for social movements, right? We really do need people to see people like them doing something that they see perceive of as risky, whether it's actually risky or not is, is an important question. But white parents think that sending their kids to black and brown, title one majority schools is a risky thing. Most of them do. So how how do we how do I provide that social proof that in fact it's like a deeply enriching and interesting and wonderful experience, um, while also making clear that this is not about me being brave. This is not about me saving anyone. This is not about my child being some magical human who you know entered this school. Um, It's about the fact that we know systemically, structurally, culturally, when white people show up at schools, resources follow. Um, We know that integrated schools, and this is the research of Rucker C. Johnson, um, there's a dose-response relationship. The earlier kids of color are in integrated schools, and the longer they're there, the better they do in school, the more lifetime earning potential they have, the longer they live even, which is insane, and white kids do fine and, in fact, have this whole... Set of um, social and emotional skills that other kids don't have who go to super homogenous, you know, high privileged schools. So, so we know this is the case. You know, we constantly talk about educational equity and how hard it is to achieve. Um, but as Rucker C. Johnson says, you know, the, the medicine that is integration works. We actually know it works. It's just our refusal, especially white and our privileged parents' refusal to administer it, that has been that means that since Brown v. Board, we've never actually done this for a concerted amount of time. Um, And the peak of integration was in 1988, which a lot of people don't realize Um, our schools, I'm guessing will be even more segregated than ever coming back this fall because of private school um, folks. Like a lot of people left public schools to go to private schools who had the resources. And then you have a lot of black families who understandably really enjoyed homeschooling and felt like it was good for their kids and they're going to stick with it instead of going to public schools. So it remains to be seen, but this is all to say, I think what's important to me is kind of how do I provide social proof? How do I provide a model for white folks of, as as I say, learning in public of like trying to actually walk your talk and um, be vulnerable about the ways in which that feels challenging and confusing and uncomfortable, but also, you know, that I am not here to get a cookie. I'm not here to And in fact, like the further away I get from the actual decision, the weirder it seems that it ever seemed in any way brave or strange. Like, I'm like, what? This is so weird. I get to be part of this, like, beautiful school community. My kid gets to be a part of it. Of course, there are, you know, struggles just like at any school community. But, like, um, it's – which is part of why I wrote the book when I did because I was like, I think I'm going to forget – what this even felt like. Like once you step outside of the matrix, it's like very hard to remember what it felt like inside the matrix where you thought you had to get into like one of three schools or you were going to die, which is is really the mindset of so many white and privileged parents, not just in Oakland, but all over the country.
1: Mm -hmm. There's so much um, that you mentioned that I'd like to get into tonight, Um, but we'll start with um, language. So the book is written pretty chronologically, and the first section is called Choosing, um, when you write about going on school tours, having conversations with other parents about their choices. And I wanna dissect some of the things that you heard from these other white parents and how um, those words and phrases can perpetuate segregation and stereotypes about schools. And so one thing that came up is the idea that purposely sending your child to their neighborhood school because you believe in integration is making your child into an experiment. And another parent told you, you have to separate your ideology from your parenting. I found those phrases to be really uncomfortable. Um, can you talk about what you found unsettling about the way parents talked about schools and school choice?
0: Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is, is make very plain and very visible the way white and privileged folks do talk about schools. Um, and this is at birthday parties. This is on playgrounds. Um, you know Elizabeth McCray Gillespie. This historian has this amazing book um, called "The Mothers of Mass Resistance." That's about like you know post Brown v. Board. You know we think of these like big bad white male judges who are chipping away at Brown v. Board, but actually the the resistance to Board was often sorry the resistance to Brown v. Board was often upheld by mothers, just like me, who went to PTA meetings talked about miscegenation, talked about all the things that, you know, white parents should be scared of and really did this like ground campaign to make sure that integration didn't happen. So I think a lot about how could I be a constant gardener in this moment of desegregation? Um, how can I be a constant gardener even of of not just like send your kid to a black and brown Title I majority school, but just stop talking about schools you don't know anything about as if you did. Don't, don't say that's a bad school if you've Never set foot on it, never interacted with the teachers or parents there. Um, there's this presumption among white and privileged people that you know is blatantly racist, obviously um but but is comes off as quite innocent when it happens in these moments at birthday parties or playgrounds, right. It's just like chit chat about well, that school wasn't a good fit for my kid, or that school seems very chaotic. chaotic is like a huge buzzword I heard quite often. Um, to describe Emerson, the school that my kid now goes to. Um, Rough is another sort of coded uh, word that's often used. Um, So anything that you can do for anyone listening, you know, you may not want to choose to school, choose to send your kid to a school like this. You may not even have a kid, right? Or you may be a grandparent or something like that. But anything you can do to stop perpetuating that culture of talking about schools that you don't know anything about as if they're bad, even if you have no firsthand knowledge of them, um, would be fantastic. And I, I promise you, if you if you think about your own context and the places that are talked about as bad schools, they will be black and brown schools. Like the, There's very little chance that anyone listening lives in a region where that kind of language is put on top of a predominantly white, predominantly privileged school. So you know, just stop stop feeding that machine um, at the very least as as a choice that would make a big difference. Um, the question of, like, will people who are listening or reading this book actually send their kid to integrating schools is is a high bar and one that remains to be seen. But I, I feel strongly that even if people just acknowledged, had some intellectual humility about what they actually know about the schools around them and then stop talking about it like they knew more, um, that would be a big step.
1: Um, When I was reading that, one thing that it revealed to me was that for some white and privileged progressive parents, they see integration as an idea that they might think is good and an idea that they hold, but it's for someone else to figure out and that they shouldn't have to give up um, any privilege to achieve equity. Yeah. Yeah. I think it also, um, reveals this misperception that you alluded to earlier that integration or sending your white child to a black school is automatically going to be a positive for the school and for the black and brown kids that go there. But for your white child, um, they're going to suffer and it's going to be a sacrifice. Yeah. As you mentioned, that's not the case. Research shows that white students also benefit from attending racially diverse schools. So can you talk about some of the things that you and Maya, your daughter, gained from Emerson?
0: Yes. I mean, I like – I'm such an Emerson stan. Like, I stand so hard for Emerson at this point. There's no objectivity. Um, And I know a lot of uh, Emerson teachers um, and, you know, parents are watching. And it's just this, like, beautiful – speaking of experiment, I mean, what a beautiful experiment. It's, like, a bunch of – Families from like profoundly different backgrounds, including we have a, a quarter kids from um, who are newcomers who speak English as a second language from places like Yemen and Central American. Um, you know, then we have a bunch of black kids, bunch of Latinx kids. We have, you know, I think at this point around 10 percent white kids. Um, 75% kids on free and reduced lunch. So you throw that crew of humans together. And I mean humans, it's not just kids. It's like the parents and the aunties and the grandparents and the um, teachers, um, the educational leaders. And it's, it's a motley crew. You know, we just like we figure it out. And I think especially during COVID, I had this like even more deep appreciation for the community because I realized we had the muscles for emergency. I mean, I was talking to teachers and they were like, I know exactly which addresses of my students need food. I'm not only dropping off a Chromebook, but I'm dropping off dinner and I'm happy to do it. I'm I'm like driving around six hours a day. This was like early COVID. Um, that's the kind of people that are there. Like the quality of human is just like so beautiful. And there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of just like learning from each other. There's a lot of laughing at each other. Um, And, you know, there's imperfections and struggles like every community has. But I think what, I mean, to my daughter, Maya, who's going into second grade now, this will be her fourth year at the school. It's just the water she swims in. It's just what she knows. And she, you know, has a bunch of friends from all over the city and all over the world. And that's totally normal to her, which I love, you know, they're, Various kinds of names from different cultures slip off her tongue in a way that it never would mine. Like, she, you know, she's just unfazed. It's what she's grown up with. Um, For the adults, it's more complicated, right? I'm the awkward one who's like trying to figure out, you know, when I get paired with someone in a PTA meeting who speaks Spanish as their first language, like, how shitty is my Spanish? Should I try to speak Spanish? Should I just do English and see if we can figure it out together? Like, you know, those kind of moments. Um, and that's great. Like, I need to be pushed in that way. And Um, I just feel like for me, it's it's an actual visceral, like lived experience of what democracy should be in America. It definitely isn't in any way, shape or form like we're so far from our dream of democracy. But for me, my kids school is the closest I ever get to living in an America that I believe is possible.
1: That's all really, really encouraging to hear. And none of those things are reflected in Emerson's two out of 10 rating on greatschools.org, which you lamented throughout the book. So let's talk about rankings and ratings. What's wrong with viewing schools in that
0: way? Well, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, because I know your reporting bumps up against this a lot. Um, You know, I know great schools is trying to do a better job of representing schools and is trying to think about ways in which they can adjust, um, they're reporting as, as an example, when I first looked at Emerson, it was a one out of 10 on gradeschools.org. Now it's a two out of 10 on gradeschools.org. Um, but you can just imagine how damning that that number is for a new parent who's freaked out and like trying to figure out where to send their kid to school of regardless of what their race or class background is, right? I mean, we're all pretty aware of what a 10 means and one is very far from it. Um, so, you know, we have to think differently about these numbers. They're mostly based on standardized tests standardized tests directly map on to socioeconomic background. Um, some schools as we've seen especially with like the hard drilling charter schools do better at helping low-income kids do better on standardized tests but the the downside of that is you're getting a school with a very somewhat even say militarized approach to focusing on tests to drilling kids um some feel like it's really joyless. I've never experienced, you know, my kid has never gone to that kind of school. I've never reported from within one of those kind of schools, but I've seen some great reporting on it. Um and it does seem like there's a big loss to a deep focus on the tests. On the other hand, and this is a conversation we have in our um school site council at Emerson, these boring meetings that I somehow managed to write a book about, like it, it the tests matter because we still live in a country where there are gauntlets by which kids have to go through to get to the next step of opportunity. So as long as tests exist in this country, I care if other black moms or other brown moms at my school are saying, I want my kid to be able to do well in this test so that they can get into this junior high, so that they can get into this high school. Like, it's not my job as like a white parent coming in to say, like, let's just forget about the tests, right? Because my kid's going to be fine. Like I, I, my kid could do shitty on the test and I'm going to get her an internship potentially at like some friend's place in the passion she has. And maybe that's going to be cool for her college resume. I mean, this is all hypothetical, but it's like the social capital I have and just the economic lack of precarity means that I can have a pretty freewheeling relationship to these tests in a way that some other parents don't feel like they can. Um, And so That's really the line that I'm trying to walk in this book is say, okay, like, I don't believe Emerson is a two out of 10 on any meaningful scale, but I also want to listen to the parents in my community and make sure that we as a community, not placing blame on any one adult in the room, but all of us make sure that on our watch, kids get what they need to thrive throughout their lives. Um, And, you know, this comes up in so many things that I've projects I've worked on. I'm really interested in the gap between the world as it is and the world as it should be. You know, like the world as it should be, this school should have all the resources in the world. Um, We should be able to do like project-based learning and all kinds of other interesting things. Um, You know, black and brown kids deserve those experiences just as much as white kids In the world as it is we never have enough resources and those kids all of our kids need to like pass tests because that's the structure of the public school system so here we are in the middle of um of all of that and we have to make decisions about where we send our kids to school and what we value and so that's a big part of the book is saying like you know you're in this tragic gap as my mentor parker palmer says like how are you going to stand in it with more grace how are you going to stand in it acknowledging your own power and doing whatever you can to make sure that the the folks who have been most marginalized historically in this country get what they deserve.
1: I want to just remind everyone, if you have any questions for me or Courtney, you can submit them in the YouTube chat and then they will be relayed to me.
0: How do you um, feel about the scores? I really would love yeah, to hear because I, I know gonna... this comes up in your reporting.
1: Um, Well, I was gonna give like a personal anecdote um, of how I relate to this. So I'm not from California. I grew up in Tampa, Florida. And when I was in elementary school, my mom faced kind of a similar conundrum with the neighborhood school being low, pretty lowly rated. It's probably has a similar profile to Emerson. It's mostly black, mostly low income. Um, and she did not want me to go to that school. And the way it works in Tampa is that you're automatically assigned or zoned to your neighborhood school. And so I'm still not quite sure what my mom had to do to get me into another elementary school. But I did go to one that has like an eight or a nine um, on grade schools. And I really enjoyed it. I I don't really know what I might have missed out on by not going to my um, neighborhood school. But there were still sacrifices that we made in um, the other elementary school. It was across Tampa. Um, it was a 45-minute drive every morning and afternoon. So that meant early mornings. It meant um, that at the end of the day, I was a lot... I was pretty often like the last kid to get picked up from after school care because my mom had to drive through traffic. So I say that all to say that, you know, the school that has the high ranking, it's not, you know, there's still sacrifices and choices and consequences that you have to make.
0: Yeah. An important part of that story also is that your mom Both had the, like, energy and wherewithal to figure all of that out and navigate the system, which is no small task, Mm -hmm. um, but also had transportation. I mean, one of the things that that underlies so much of educational equity is transportation in in cities with with bad public transportation systems. It's like we say we have school choice. We say low-income families can choose where they want to go, but they can't actually get where they might want to go, not to mention the cultural harm that's caused by being at a school that was not built for you, that may not like pedagogically celebrate your culture or reinforce, you know, the stuff that you're experiencing at home and and the beauty that's there. Um, so there there are so many costs. I mean, I think we've told a very simple story about integration in this country. Um, and, you know, there's so Ruby Bridges is a fucking badass. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this, but is like should be celebrated in every way, shape and form um her parents should be celebrated her mom just passed recently like you know folks who actually did the work of trying to integrate schools post brown v board mostly black and brown folks deserve all the adoration but the story we tell about it is so simple it's like their bravery their opportunity that they gained through this when the truth is there were so many costs there were so many spiritual costs there were beautiful black schools that got destroyed through brown v board um there were economic costs. I mean, there, there were just so many things that black and brown families historically went through to integrate schools, which is part of why this contemporary conversation is so painful, because it's like so white families, because of some theoretical threat to their children that is totally unsubstantiated by any kind of research, aren't going to send their kid to a black and brown school and, and then say it's an experiment, to your point of the earlier question, when this is what we've done historically in this country to black and brown families. Like, so, so one of the other things I'm really trying to do in the book is kind of right size white and privileged people's fears. Like I'm so struck by the way, and this really came up in the book around the merger narrative um, at the way in which white and privileged people appear so often to feel so comfortable claiming traumas, narratives of trauma, um, claiming all of these intricate reasons why they can't make an integrating choice. Um, and so I'm, I, I hope that people leave the book feeling like they have to face those explanations with a little bit more of a clear-eyed honesty.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to pitch you a question that I got from um, the audience, and it is, how do we encourage more parents in the Bay Area to think more positively about their public schools?
0: It's hard. I mean, I'd, I'd be curious about your thought on this, too, um, Ashley, because, you know, Oakland Unified is not known for its like cogent, cohesive leadership or like, you know, clear vision or management of money. Right. It's like OUSD has had, you know, in recent history and sort of throughout history, so many problems, um, so many documented you know, corruptions and disorganization and all the other things. So it's it did feel hard to write a book saying, like, come on, like, let's do this. Like, let's invest in public schools when we're in a region where the public schools are so profoundly mismanaged by those um, in charge. Um, You know, not to say anything about this particular superintendent, who I think is doing a great job and doing the best she can, but it's just like, it's not it's not known for being like a stellar district or a district where integration is prioritized or things are handled well um so it's it's hard to ask people to invest in public schools and in fact for those who aren't aware like oakland is about 40% white and only 10% of public school kids are white so even the concept of like integrating oakland public schools is not really a white issue because there aren't enough white kids to go around um you know there are what like 80 schools i feel like you just said this in a piece, 81 81 schools, schools. 81 schools, 10% white. Like that's, you know, I think the question really here is like, how do you make integrated schools beyond whiteness? Like forget, forget white people. I mean, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep going at white people, but, but, you know, how do we just um, integrate from a class perspective? How do we, how do we make sure that the actual structural way in which our enrollment works, which again is something else you've been reporting on? um, is as immune to kind of white opportunity hoarding and, and strategizing and maneuvering as possible. Um, so I think there are some deep structural questions before us. Uh, I don't, I, I wouldn't dismiss someone's reservations about OUSD or the public schools here. I think they're legit. Um, but I think in, maybe it's COVID, um, and the sort of the year we've all experienced together, but I feel this profound urgency about public schools right now. I just feel like our democracy is so fragile and we've seen that in the last you know five years and especially in the last year. And so anything I can do to feed democracy, which again to me is a straight line to public schools where people learn how to be critical thinkers, they learn how to befriend and collaborate, those unlike them. Um, for me, that's urgently worth it, even if it's it's not a perfect situation. Um, and you know, people, in addition to saying like, are you experimenting with your kids? will be like, well, everyone wants what's best for their kids. And this is also where I just feel like what's best for my kids is that after I'm long gone, they actually live in a thriving representative democracy. And I, it's very dramatic, but I, I don't feel like that's going to happen if we don't have a strong public education system. Um, I want them to live in a country where people are critical thinkers, where they can distinguish between truth and manipulation, where they can befriend and collaborate with people unlike them, and like that's to me not going to happen unless enough of us invest in public education.
1: I would just add um, to answer the question: you know, all of the things that you said about the district central office are true, but um, you can still get involved at your local, you know, neighborhood school, and it can still be a great place for your child, as you learned, Courtney. So I guess I would advise parents um, to try to do what they can at their their local school or the school that they choose for their children.
0: And probably also, I don't know how much reporting you've done on this, but like private schools aren't perfect places. I mean, I think that's the other dichotomy that gets set up is like, well, public schools are so under-resourced and imperfect and badly managed, but it's like a lot of private schools have a lot of problems too. So it's not like you can opt out of complexity, even if you can pay for it for it. Um, what kind of complexity are you in? Like, I'm, I'm much more interested in the kind of complexity I find at a school like Emerson um, than the kind of complexity I might find at a very expensive private school. Um, so that's another just another thing to throw out there is that I don't think investing in public education. I mean, investing in not disinvesting from public education means you get to avoid complexity.
1: Um, I want to go back to the book. One of the most interesting people that I found in the book was your daughter's TK teacher, Mrs. Minor. Um, and she is a woman who is really passionate about affirming Black students' identity and caring for them, but not coddling them. And what I also liked about her was that she didn't coddle you either when you went to talk to her um, and ask her about her views on school integration and the role that white parents play. And she said to you, um, so you're wondering about white parents integrating schools, but did you really mean gentrifying them? And so I want to pose that question to you here. What is the difference, if if there is one, between gentrifying and integrating public schools?
0: Yes. Um, Mrs. Minor, who now is called AMA by uh, most folks, including the kids at her beautiful preschool that she started in East Oakland, the Learning Forest Uh, is such an important teacher in this book. Not just my kid's teacher, because she was my kid's teacher, but my teacher, which becomes like a big backbone of the whole thing. The book would not be the same without her. Um, So I feel very grateful to her. And um, I think there is a profound difference between integrating and gentrifying a school, uh, but it's played out in very small interpersonal ways. So um, I think... Gentrifying a school is is when white folks, privileged folks, Asian American folks come along and say, and this language you hear a lot, critical mass. So like, let's get a critical mass of people from the neighborhood who previously abandoned this neighborhood school. Let's now invest in this neighborhood school and make it, quote unquote, better. But the better is defined by the culture of those parents, by like usually a white elite culture. Um, and so it may not actually align at all with what generations of families at that school have valued about that place. Um, and so, and we really saw this in that super popular podcast, nice, nice white parents, right. It's like white folks bullying their way in, remaking the school in their image and wanting to get a cookie for it. Um, so, I mean, the most primary thing that, that white and privileged parents can do who are thinking about this and not wanting to be gentrifying schools is, uh, think about how you show up. And I've been so accompanied in that regard by this organization called Integrated Schools, which folks should Google and check out. That has a podcast and just has like a bunch of resources about once you make this choice, which as you know, is only the first part of the book is making the choice. And then the three other parts are about showing up, like how do you live into the choice? um, How do you do it in a respectful, humble way? And Integrated Schools talks a lot about, you know, show up, shut up and stay put, uh, which became a bit of a mantra for me, complicated eventually by realizing that shutting up in some ways can be an inauthentic at times, that shutting up can sometimes mean not making sure that all kids are getting what they need to thrive and and just being a voice for transparency and um, rigor. So like, I began to complicate that through the narrative of the book. But that's really what I think of as the difference is like, are you there to humbly- Um, be a part of the community, authentically, humbly, be a part of the community, offer the resources you do have, um, or are you there to take over, remake the school in your image? Um, And I think surprisingly, it can be hard for white and privileged people to, to feel into that difference, which is part of why the book is so textured and so vulnerable is I think that like this moment we're in of racial reckoning requires this kind of vulnerability about like these actual interactions, not just all like academic um, or like theoretical ideas about how to be anti-racist, but how do how do we actually show up and try to be aware of our, our impact on communities?
1: That's a really good insight. Um, I was also thinking about this question and I can't say that I had ever grappled with it before reading it in um, your book, but I would say with gentrification, there's also an element of displacement, which is what you were talking about. And so I looked up the demand rates for Emerson and it's at about 60 percent, which means that there are more seats available than the number of families who um, wanted to go to the school. Um, And there are some schools like Chabot and Peralta and Glenview, which are all schools that you talk about in your book that the other parents are opting for that have a higher than 100% um, demand rate, which means that more people request the school than there are seats. So I think if we get to a point where you have white people um, increasingly going to these schools, and fewer and fewer black and brown families going there, that seems like gentrification.
0: Yeah, well, and this is an important point for anyone listening in Oakland, like, this is not about Emerson being some, you know, and this is more terrible white parent language of like a diamond in the rough, like, Emerson's awesome. So is like Prescott and Hoover and Cleveland. And like there are 81 schools in this district and white folks congregate in three or four of them, right? So it's like there are so many schools that white people interested in this conversation can check out. It's not about like Emerson in particular. And that's where I think these demand rate things come in where it's like all of a sudden like this is the hot school, to your point, like this is a place that people have heard about through sort of the whisper network of white parenting. There are so many beautiful communities in Oakland and in every part of the country that are overlooked um, by white and privileged folks just because they haven't thought deeply enough about these questions of like, what do I actually want from a school experience? How can my power and privilege, instead of sort of paralyzing me, be something that I learn how to, how to leverage and live into and, and learn how to use for like a greater good? Um, I did want to throw out, just because I think it's so um, comprehensive and smart, is there's this organization in New York called Integrate NYC that's a youth-led movement. It's like all teenagers who are just like totally fantastic. Um, And they have this concept of the five R's of real integration. So to your point of like integration versus gentrification. And the five R's are race and enrollment, which is pretty straightforward, right? Make sure that, you know, you have and I would say class too, sort of race and class enrollment policies that encourage actual integration. Resources. So make sure resources are distributed more evenly. And then relationships across group identities. And this is a really important one because we see so many schools where there's actual, the demographics look integrated, but actually kids don't know each other. They don't sit together. They're not in the same classes because all the white kids are in like AP classes, et cetera. Restorative justice. So this is like actual processes of like living in multicultural community, which is not easy for us because we're still such a segregated country. And then representation of school faculty, which is also a really important point that that um, Mrs. Minor brings up a lot is like, who are the teachers and educational leaders that are standing in front of those kids in those classrooms? So just wanted to throw that out because I'm I love Integrate NYC and I think they've probably done that better than than most of us adults.
1: Wow, that's really interesting. I will definitely have to look up that organization. Um, I want to talk about Brewer for a few minutes, Edna Brewer Middle School, because that does seem to be a school that white parents have recently discovered, and now the parents and teachers there are kind of grappling with the demographic changes um, at the school. So um, last fall, I wrote a story about Edna Brewer Middle School, um, and it's the school with the highest demand rate in OUSD at 259%. They got 700 applications um, last year for sixth grade for a sixth grade class of about 250. Um, But it wasn't always like that. And over the past 10 years, as the demand rate has gone up, the demographics have shifted. The percentage of white students has gone from 10 percent to about 25 percent. And white students are now the largest um, plurality at the school. And they've seen The black and Asian and Latino um, percentages go down and they've also seen the number of students with free and reduced lunch um, which is a a measure of uh, poverty and low income also decrease and so I'm curious uh, what you make of that what you think a solution could be and we can talk a little bit about what the parents and teachers at the school are trying to implement to try to mitigate those trends
0: Well, this is – and I'd love to hear you talk about your reporting because I know you've reported on this enrollment pilot. But there is this enrollment pilot um, in Oakland with – I think it's three schools are involved, right? Yeah, three schools trying to sort of get ahead of the curve on some of this and say, like, how do we create structural interventions that, again, ameliorate how strong white and privileged culture is around – strategizing around this sort of like whisper network of white people who tell each other like, Oh, now Edna Brewer is okay to go to, like you should really put your name, put them on your list. Um, So I think these, these kind of structural interventions are super important. I also think the cultural interventions are really important. Um, I was struck. um, A lot of people have read um, Ibram X. Kendi this year and um, in how to be an anti-racist. He talks about that. He thinks policy has to come before culture that he sort of sets up that linear dynamic. And I was so curious about that as I was working on my book, because I was like, you know, Brown v. Board really was ahead of the culture, right? Brown v. Board was passed way before Americans, at least white Americans, were ready to actually think about integration. And we saw the fallout for that. I mean, we have like the heartbreaking visuals of that. Um, so ultimately was that a net good or was there so much damage caused because the culture wasn't ready for that policy that it wasn't it's an open question i mean it's like we're all just still living into this um journey but i i wonder about that with these um i think there are districts there's clearly oakland does a a remarkably bad job at structuring enrollment to protect against white and privileged parents maneuvering right so like writ large, that's got to be a net good. Um, but I, I do think, I still believe in doing the cultural work and the policy work hand in hand. I think like we should change how enrollment happens in Oakland, but I think we also have to keep uh, peeling back the layers of this like theoretically progressive city and saying like, how is it that we all are so identified with progressive values and with equity and with anti-racism and yet we continue to stand by while, you know, the reading rates for black kids in our city are so profoundly bad. Like that, what, what, what sense do we make of that? Like that has to be a cultural and even like, I would argue a spiritual and collective question. Um, but I'd love to hear you. Like, how do you think that intervention is going and how do you think about culture versus policy and kind of the order of those things? Right. Um,
1: so I'll start by briefly going over how enrollment works in OUSD, um, essentially, you rank the schools that you would like to go to. And then Oakland Unified um, gives you a priority based on a few different groups. So if you have a sibling that goes to that school, your child will have a higher chance of getting in. Um, if you live in the neighborhood, that's like the next highest priority around a school, you have a higher chance than getting in than if you don't live in the neighborhood. And then if you live in Oakland, you have a higher chance of getting in than someone who doesn't live in Oakland. So There is, even though um, OUSD does have school choice and you can choose to apply to any school you want, there is a neighborhood priority. Um, And these enrollment pilots that um, Edna Brewer, Sequoia Elementary and Chabot Elementary were trying to do was they wanted to give a priority to students from low income black and brown neighborhoods. And so they ran that pilot this past enrollment cycle, and they did see that um, they accomplished what they set out to do, which was offer more seats to students from low-income, Black and Brown areas of Oakland. Um, but I think that you know it's a pilot; it's not going to, um, it's not going to make systemic change. It's just offering you know, a few dozen seats to a few students, um, in different areas of Oakland. And one thing that I, um, heard from the teachers and parents at Brewer who designed their pilot was that what they came up with, um, and the end was a, a compromise. They initially wanted to preserve like half the seats in their incoming class to low income black and brown students, or they wanted to make, um, they wanted to give those students a priority above the neighborhood priority. And that did not go over well with um, the white and other privileged parents who were able to buy into that neighborhood to get into that school. And so, you know, I think.
0: Yeah. And this is where like these questions of like, are public schools actually public, become very interesting because it's like – I think it's Jack Schneider whose work I really benefited from while I was working on my book says like you buy a house, you buy a school. Like people – and and I was not actually organized enough to do that when we bought our house. I was like I'm pregnant. I don't know which way is up. I'm just trying to find a place to lay my head. I did not look up what our neighborhood school was. I was in no way planning um, but I think I'm quite unusual in that regard. I think a lot of people who are buying homes, especially in the Bay Area, at this incredibly inflated market moment, are thinking a lot about what district they're buying into, what school they are buying into. Um, and that's where this perversion of the notion of like a public school system really hits home is that all of this is so intertwined with housing. Um, And here we are, you know, in one of the worst housing markets in the nation. So of course, that shows up in our school segregation.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I want to address one question that we just got that said, what about white children that are low income? And I will add that for the pilots, they targeted, so they didn't target individual families, they targeted like census tracts that were low income, and that had more than half of the residents were black or Latino. So it'll just be, you know, if you live on that block or in that census tract, you'll get a priority um, into that school. But it was an expressed desire from the schools that um, designed the internships that they wanted students of color, more students of color specifically in their schools.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I think this is not unlike the question that always comes up about grappling with race and racism is like, but what about poor white people? Right. This is like when we talk about Trump or we talk about like so many of the racial reckoning related conversations that have happened over the year. Like, of course there are low income white folks who are grappling with access to a high quality school, um, super important topic, but I don't think it should distract from the fact that we live in historically black city, the home of the black Panthers And for generations, we have not educated black kids in the way that they deserve to be educated. And so like that, you know, of course, we should be considering low income white kids. But I, I really feel like that's kind of a red herring in these conversations that often serves to distract us from really thinking about the most historically marginalized folks, not just in Oakland, but nationally. And how do we finally, 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 like generation after generation do something different?
1: I also wanted to add that um, when it comes to school segregation, we can't talk about school segregation without talking about housing segregation. And in a city as segregated as Oakland, I think that if OUSD really wants to be serious about, you know, integrating schools or having equitable enrollment, they can't leave the neighborhood preference intact. Like you just can't. Um, Give people a preference to the schools that they live around when you have such a segregated um, city. In case and- anyone
0: missed it, that was Ashley's drop the mic moment. <laughs> <laughs> like, because neighborhood priority is like such a sacred cow. You know, like I, I love that you said that because I do think like that's we got to get real about some of this stuff. We got to like talk about the ways in which public schools can be bought in in the current system that we have in this current structure. So I love that you said that. I just want to make sure you're so subtle. <laughs> you're so smart and so subtle that I'm like, is everyone hearing that? Okay, keep going. <laughs>
1: um, and then the, the last thing I wanted to say is that um, when giving, you talked a bit about culture versus policy, and now we have a policy that gives parents and white parents the choice of where they want to go to school, but it doesn't seem like white parents are going to willingly integrate. Um, so- I think that the, um, the policy might have to come first, but I don't know. I'm not a parent and I haven't really had to grapple with these questions. Um,
0: well, one of the things we talked earlier that I love so much about your story and you shared a little bit about your elementary school experience, but you ended up by the time you were choosing high school, really advocating with your mom. Like I know the high school I want to go to and she actually disagreed with you at first and you pushed for it. Um, I think that's, like, such a beautiful part of of the this moment we're living in, um, is that young people are saying, like, A, we want equity, first and foremost. Not, not all young people want integration. A lot of young people probably have reason to be cynical about integration. Um, but young people are watching the disaster we've made <laughs> of this country in terms of kind of actual racial he- and social healing, and they're saying, like, we want something different. And including, I think, a lot of, you know, black and brown kids saying, I'm not aspiring. Like, I'm not going to spend my whole life and all my, you know, energy and emotion and love on reaching this white ideal that is tied up in so many of these, you know, the grade school's numbers and the Ivy League expectations and all of the things. Like, I'm interested in carving my own path. That includes being a part of communities, whether multiracial or beautiful Afrocentric, you know, communities, where like my values are mirrored, where my excellence is is easily seen by the leaders and educators around me. Um, so I I loved hearing about your own advocacy as a teenager, and I just that's one of the things that's given me the most hope as I was reporting on this book is just all these young people who are so much more clear um, about what's going on in this country than I think I was in high school.
1: We have about 10 minutes left. I have a couple of more questions that I really want to ask. And I'm also going to ask um, some of the ones that we've gotten. um, I'll try to be short. (laughs) Okay. Um, One more thing that I wanted to add about um, the pilots that I think is really important is that they are putting the burden on black and brown students and families to do the integrating and that's a burden that we, and I'm speaking as a Black woman who is the daughter of someone who was bused to white schools to integrate them, um, that has been a burden that Black and Black Brown families have carried for decades. Um, and so these pilots don't really change that.
0: Thank you for saying that. I think that's so important.
1: Okay. And let's see, I guess I'll ask a question from the audience. Um, Someone asked, have you developed friendships with parents at your daughter's school as your daughter has?
0: Yes. I mean, the simple answer is yes. Uh, But I find my ability to create friendships is far more fraught than hers. And that's, you know, about adults being a lot dumber about multiracial, multi-class friendship, especially adults who didn't go to integrated schools. You know, I went I I think one could argue I went to an integrated middle school and high school to some extent, but my elementary school was very white, like predominantly white. Um, and so I often think about how all of this would feel if I'd had a different kind of elementary school experience, which is, you know, as we know from all of the the research is so foundational to how a kid you know, at how their brain is wired, how their body actually knows how to show up in spaces. I mean, it gets it gets pretty corporeal. It's like very clear that my kid can show up on a playground where there isn't a white kid in sight and feel very at home and make friends with kids that don't seem to appear to look anything like her. Like, that's just what her body now knows how to do. And I think because of the work of people like Rasmah Menikin and others, like, I've been very interested in how white bodies just like that have been in segregated spaces don't really know how to be a multicultural community, my own included. Um, And so that's part of the book, too, is is kind of both being really open to and having some great friendships with other parents, but also being um, very critical of my own capacity to do that authentically and kind of to like read the different layers of my own expectations of other people.
1: One more question from um, outside of California, actually, from the audience. They said, I live in an 88% white Northampton, Massachusetts, which isn't a city and there aren't any majority black or brown schools for white parents to consider. There are majority black and brown schools in nearby towns, though, and my white family is considering those options. I wonder your thoughts about moving to one of these towns and... Uh, fully immersing economically into the environment versus simply driving one's white kid to the school there.
0: Fascinating. Wow. Ashley, I don't know if you have thoughts about that. That's really interesting. Um, I know Northampton, beautiful place, beautiful humans there that I know and love. Um, I'm trying to like feel my way into this difference. I mean, certainly there's no way to – Get away from being an outsider if you're driving in, but I actually think there's no way to get away from being an outsider if you move there. Like I, I sort of end up feeling you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, and you're blessed if you do, you're blessed if you don't. Like it's it's about how you show up in the actual school community. Um, I think proximity to the school is special in so many ways, and like there could be some real benefits. Um, particularly if you're the kind of family that would get involved in things outside of the school, like, would you be a part of civic organizations? Would you, are you like a person of faith that would go to like religious institutions where you would also see folks that are families at your kid's school? Like the more intertwined your lives become, obviously the more um, just joy and um, good energy flows to like create those friendships and like really do the damn thing. But um, I also just think they're, the, that like by by way of white skin privilege and and economic privilege, which is what it sounds like is going on here. Um, you'll always be an outsider to some extent. So I, I wouldn't make the move thinking somehow that's going to erase that difference or kind of boil down the complexity. Um, but Ashley, wondering if you have any thoughts about that question.
1: Um, I would say move there. Um, but not just for the school, but because you're currently living in a city or a town that's 88% white, and that's not reflective of the world around us. So I would be in favor of moving there so you can, you know, immerse yourself in a more diverse city and have your kids in a more diverse school.
0: We should start our own advice show, Ashley. This <laughs> one 800 Courtney and Ashley.
1: <laughs> um, okay, let's see. I'll ask one um, of my questions, one of my last questions. So um, the pandemic has forced schools to close in um, Oakland and the Bay Area for more than a year, and that combined with some parents' desires um, to do more in-person learning, they're fed up with distance learning, has led some people to think that there will be an exodus of white parents from uh, public school districts like Oakland and San Francisco, which will lead to more inequality. What's the right way to address that? Can we prevent that from happening?
0: Um, can we prevent that ha- from happening? No, I mean I think we're on like a we're on a train. We got to keep riding it. But and and I don't think we know till this fall. I mean I've been having a lot of conversations um, with folks at my school, and it's like, you know, we go back on Monday, which is crazy. I can't believe that's already happening. But we go back on Monday, and by the way, my My oldest will be going to second grade, her fourth year at the school. My youngest is going to start kindergarten. So I'm going to have two kids at the school. Um, And I think a lot of teachers and educational leaders just feel like we got to show up on the first day and see what we're dealing with. I mean, there's such profound economic and emotional um, and obviously physical health, like health implications of this last year. And um, we'll have to do some assessing when everyone is on site to be like, what are the needs What can we do for folks? I know the COVID funding that filtered down to our site from the federal government is making a huge difference. There's a bunch of stuff that we were trying to figure out how to fund that is going to be funded for this year by those COVID emergency dollars. That's not a long-term solution to our lack of resources, but I'm feeling very grateful about that. Um, and, you know, there's there's a lot of complexity to this because it's not just – I mean, certainly there are white families who had the economic privilege to buy into private schools, which have, you know, infectious disease specialists on staff and big, beautiful wedding-like tents outside and all the resources to make going back to school happen. Um, and those that are even more elite that are doing kind of the bespoke pod thing forever because they're like, oh, I get to, like, design this myself. Um, but the other thing is there are a lot of black families who – are not going back to public schools, um, who've said this homeschooling thing actually works better for us and our kids. Our kids are learning to read at a faster rate. Um, you know, black families and and brown families have been underserved for a very long time by public schools. So I think a lot of them after this year of experiencing what it's like to be in a little bit more control of their kids' learning experience want to keep doing that. Um, so it's, it's, is complex and I don't know I think it remains to be seen. I don't know if you have any predictions about that yourself, Ashley, from your reporting.
1: Um, I also would like to wait and see until we have the hard numbers. I've, I've heard anecdotally and seen in conversations like on Twitter and elsewhere that people are fed up and want to leave the district. But I do think it uh, remains to be seen what will actually happen in the fall. Um, there's one more question, one more audience question that I'd like to pose to you. And they said, you mentioned that your local public school got you as close as you have been in participating in the American democratic vision. What is it about schools that makes that happen?
0: I just love, I mean, schools are such beautiful places. I just, it's like, I mean, kids are so beautiful, like one of the great joys of of reporting this book is just i've paid such close attention to children um and you know i've always paid attention to my own children but to pay attention to a bunch of kids at my kid's school and kind of like get to watch what lights them up and um like seek out their special gifts and talents i mean there are a few kids i have fallen madly in love with um that are not my kid and, you know, I love my kids to death, but, like, it's just such a, a beautiful privilege to be near children and to get to watch them and appreciate them. And and that's what teachers and educators get to do. I mean, no one goes into teaching unless they get that and they love that sacred experience of watching children become who they are. Um, so I think that's – I mean, as cheesy as it sounds, like, that's the beauty of schools. It's kids. I mean it's it's all the adults that are screwing it up. It's all the adults that have have led to um such profound inequities. When you when you really listen to what kids are saying about what they want from schools and what they enjoy and, you know, their own very innate curiosity for learning and all the rest of it, it's pretty straightforward and, and it's it's gorgeous. So I, I guess it's just kids. I think kids have the most to teach us about how an actually functioning democracy would work.
1: Awesome. I think that's a really good place to end. We are at 7pm. So I think that wraps up our time. I want to thank you, Courtney Martin, for joining us for today's Commonwealth Club program. And I want um, to encourage everyone watching to check out her book, Learning in Public, Lessons for a Racially Divided America from My Daughter's School, um, which is out just today. Is there a particular place that you want people to buy from?
0: Bookshop.org helps get it through indie bookstores. If you have a local indie bookstore, that's like obviously wonderful to, to feed those important places of business in all of our local communities. Um, and you can subscribe also to my Substack newsletter. It's called Examined Family. Follow me on Twitter at Courtrights, all the things. And please, please, please check out Ashley's reporting and Oakland Side in general, which is one of these incredible local outlets that is... Um, just doing a fascinating and important job of covering what's happening here in Oakland, doing it with accountability to folks who have lived here for a long time, being like very creative about events and, and all the rest of it. I just have such admiration for both your reporting and for Oakland side more largely, Ashley. So thank you so much for doing this.
1: Well, thank you so much. And my coworkers are an awesome team and we all do really incredible work. So lastly, this program will soon be placed on the Commonwealth Club website at www.commonwealthclub.org, where we encourage you to view it and share it with your networks. I'm Ashley McBride, and this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. Hey, thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher.